Welcome to the Cultural Humility Podcast presented by Indigenous Vision. We're an educational nonprofit based out of Montana and Arizona. This is a special series focusing exclusively on the cultural humility framework. This model is sourced from the Train the Trainer session taught by Dr. Melody Turbalon and Dr. Jan Marie Garcia, along with their published article. You can learn all about this through our website, indigenousvision.org slash cultural humility. That is also where you can learn more about our upcoming training sessions. Thank you for listening. Cultural Humility, People, Principles, and Practices. Hello and welcome to the Cultural Humility podcast series presented by Indigenous Vision. My name is Melissa Spence, and this will officially be our ninth installment of the podcast. If you are tuning in right now for the first time and you're not really sure what we're talking about, I strongly recommend you go back to our playlist and check out the very first one, starting with the agreements up to the principles. And now we're here to share with other people across the U.S. who are using cultural humility in their everyday work practices. I am here with our executive director, Sutra Calling Last, and we have Jay Africa, our very special guest on this special edition. I'll let you introduce yourself to our listeners. So yeah, my name is Jay Africa. I'm actually a public servant. So I've worked in local government for uh, a little bit over 15 years. I'm a psychologist by trade and really just really understand how important it is to change systems are to really address some of the most uh, challenging problems that we have. And I grew up in the Philippines. You know, I came here in my mid-20s to, re- to go to grad school. I um, was hoping to go back to the Philippines so that I, whatever I learned here can be um, used in, in my home country. But the political um, turmoil was happening. And so I found a way. Um, my parents actually encouraged me to stay here because it just there seems to be more opportunities. And how were you introduced to cultural humility? What was the very first um, learning point for you? So I was in grad school um, and we as, uh, had, you know, a, a track on multicultural issues. So you could, you could have a certificate, right? So I was interested in learning about it. And so we had classes on how to work with Asian Americans, how to work with Native Americans or Indigenous people. I mean, those things. And so in one class, I don't I guess I was just researching. I happened to come up with this article um, by Melanie and I read it. And I was like, whoa, I've never read something like that in grad schools. And so I, I thought about it for a little while. Um, and then I read it again. And I'm like, it was so profound and simple at the same time. And yet here I was really believing about competence that you have this little list that you can, you know, can get, you know, and then you look at people and say, this is sort of my interpretation of them. And these are the values. And people are so more, much more so complex about it. And so I, I really tried to study it a little bit more. Self-reflection, I really connected with that. And then when I was in, um, uh, you know, finished grad school, I started thinking about really changing our notion of competence to more of like that people are, people change, people are flexible. Um, Identities are complex. So yet we have sort of this notion that people need to be put in boxes. And so as as I become a public servant and working with, um, in the field of mental health and substance use, you know, I really think, thought about, well, how can we really teach people to have a very much more wider perspective of how to approach um, working with people who are different than us and also change in systems because the systems, even if we change people, if the systems are the same, um, the infrastructure is the, the same, then we, we don't change. The, the, the change is short, you know, it's, it's really short-lived. 
Wow. I, you know, I also heard about cultural humility in grad school too, and it made the same impact on me. And I was just, I kept going back to it of this concept, you know, everybody in class says, this is a, this is a really different concept. How do I put it into action? And I, I think it's, I keep going back while the agreements are how you put it into action. Yeah. There's just so much that you just unloaded in this first five minutes that I just, I want to know more about the Philippines and um, just, yeah, all of that. It's just a, an incredible background to bring the culture humility, especially because these issues that we face in our communities and in our indigenous communities or our countries back home and the turmoil and the civil warfare and lateral violence and all this stuff, it it really does contribute to how we do our work as professionals. Is there anything that you can easily say, like in the 30, 45 minutes we have of your background in Filipino culture? Yeah, well, I grew up, um, you know, the the Philippines was um, colonized by Spain for many, many hundreds of years. And so many of the beliefs that um, we brought are really bought by you know Spain and and then we were under the Americans and then a little bit for the Japanese. So our culture really, although there are indigenous people in our country, really as you know with colonization, really tried to wipe all of that out. So I grew up really trying to understand who I am, what was important to me, what was my values, having religion there, and really understand sort of the, the what was going on with me. I identify as a transgender individual. I came out when I was in my late 40s, which is different from many of the people that have come out here. And so my struggles and my perspectives are different. And also growing up in a country that had martial law and dictatorship. So I've always believed in you know, liberation and freedom and independence and your own ability to self-determine your life. And so for me, those are the values that I've consistently held on. And yet the Western, you know, values, colonized values continue to say, nope, that's not how it is. This is how you should, you know, be in the world. And so I've just struggled with that all my life. And, and so for me, like I say that, and I've spoken to Melanie about this already, that at the end of my life, given sort of my experience, both my weaknesses and my strengths, I want to be a person that's remembered because I've embodied love. That's the only thing that I want to be, is to really a person that in their life of their struggles, both successes, opportunities, and I want to be remembered embodying love. And love is hard. People think it's easy, but love takes commitment and hard work and being there and also embracing cultural humility, right? Understanding power, always self-reflecting on like, what was my role there? What was my lens? And, And then engaging other people in this process but the one that I love really about cultural humility is really pushing organizations to be accountable to do this work. Because I, I'm my own understanding growing up and also with, with school is cultural competence. It's become a personal agenda, personal advocacy. In my opinion, no, it shouldn't be that the organizations that have created this disparities, this injustice also have the responsibility to move the needle so that everybody can thrive. And so we, we get stuck with, oh, it's your responsibility. I take all these classes. I do self-reflection. You go to work and the, the organizations don't care. And so what is our responsibility as leaders, as folks in within those organizations to move that uh, and build infrastructure so it continues? What an incredible guest we're blessed with today. I'm so excited to, to bring this conversation to everybody. And 
And there's just so much to unpack in our little short, uh, the few minutes we get to with each other. But um, you have this incredible background in psychology and substance abuse. And that's something that, you know, a lot of uh, communities of color struggle with and have stereotypes and assumptions uh, that follow us into the professional realm. One question I really love asking all of our guests, though, is have you found that you when you're practicing, you know, counting up your assumptions or breaking those down and starting to disrupt your own work like that. Uh, are you finding that you're uh, more critical to yourself or are you finding you're more compassionate knowing that you have this framework of culture humility around you? I think it's both. Some days I feel more critical about like, I should have known this. I have done this work. I'm, you know, really studying it. And still, you know, I'm a human being. And then like, oops, that's why we have the oops and ouch you know, um, language, right? And then there are other ones I'm like, wow, that that perspective, that twist when I was open, when I really, you know, made all these assumptions and I realized that I have, you know, I, I did, I pivoted, then like, wow, that was really a great opportunity. But because we've been socialized to be ashamed and, and also with white supremacy to be perfect, you know, that always kicks in with me. And like, you know, well, well, I'm a director, I'm in this leadership, I should know better. And that's still... No, the, the point is, got that checked, and then say how I can do better. But I think, again, um, I keep talking, like we are so much socialized to be somebody different, to be, you know, um, with these principles and values that really have been used to colonize and um, treat people differently. And I'm really to, to dismantle that our own love for self um, should be elevated and say, I'm imperfect. I'm perfect with my imperfection, I'm growing, and how I can be a role model to people who say, oops, I made a mistake too, and I can embrace that. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I'm observing in most of our participants is this, the, especially people who come back to trainings or come visit with us later on, like you, is that they're saying, well, I found a little bit more compassion for myself, and I'm easier on myself when I make a mistake because... I acknowledge the mistake and then it's, and then that's where the work begins. And so, and I'm not scared of the work this time because I know it's kind of a process that we'll have to go through for the rest of our lives, which is really different for me. I know, I know this is a professional interview, but like, I, I tend to be like astrologically a cancer. And so I like, am a worrier and I think on things for quite a, a long time. And I, I tend to not let them go very easily, but culture humility has helped with that process. It's almost like a process of um, of grief, mm-hmm. essentially. Like I'm mad, and then I'm sad, and then I'm. <laughs> yeah, so it's a journey. Um, but yes, it is. It is. So earlier you talked about how you were with Melanie, and uh, you you kind of suggested a cohort approach to cultural humility. Do you want to get a little bit into that and how what that experience was like for you actually working with Melanie? I think she actually shared in the podcast with you all um, when she came about sort of that I tried to find her. Like I sent emails. I did a Google search on her and like where she was working and would send this emails and never got a response. And I was really feeling disheartened. And then I said, you know, just one more. And I sent this email to her. I think it was a I think it was policy. I think I did Children's Hospital and then UCSF. I don't quite remember. And then finally, the last one I said, this is my last event. And then she responded. I was just just, you know, my mind was blown by this person that I admired from so long, and then responded to me. And I said, if I was working in this, 
um, a local government and I had read about her work and I want to start bringing this in in my role then um, as somebody who was leading equity work in an organization. And I really aligned with her principles and would she have a conversation of how I, we would bring this to local government? And that actually blossomed into a friendship. And so, you know, she came in, did some training. That was great. People were received uh, on one end. And some people, I remember this for the first time we did the people like, what, their minds were shifting like cultural humility. Well, what, what is that? What, I, I have to be humble. Well, what is that? Well, is there spirituality? Was there about humiliate, humiliation there? All of those things, right? So, and so I, I really said, it's really a framework and an approach. And so I said, well, the problem here is, you know, we can't, you can't just come once or do five trainings and then you leave because the learnings dissipate, right? But we remember we are trying to build an infrastructure. So what would be an idea that we could do? And I said, why don't we do a train the trainer cohort? And she's like, well, what would that look like? We, we do a training for everybody and anybody who's interested we train them to continue having a, a, um, training sessions with you and allow them to teach so they develop the skill. But then after you leave, then there'll be internally the capacity to be able to do that. And we, we, you know, and she said, oh, that's a great idea. So we worked on it. So we built actually that, you know, we made a contract with her, we worked with her. And in the beginning, people were not really, you know, were, were worried because they're not the expert, but she has an approach of telling you like, it's really about growth. It's really about how you facilitate. It's the openness. And so she would also co-train with them in that process. So you have sort of a master person doing it. And then at the same time, people are learning. And we've actually kept that cohort approach for a long time. So I, I don't know how many that uh, I had left that sort of organization. So when I left, we had two or three cohorts of about 10 people, you know, that really would come and then created as part of that, the training cohort. One of the things that she said, I think we should bring them together, you know, on a regular basis and say, well, how was that when you taught that class? What are the things that came up for you? Let's let's process what. And so she created a community of dialogue. So we had those cohorts and then they would come together and say, well, that, you know, when I did something, when I responded to this, it didn't work out. So it just really was a learning group. And people talked about their struggles of the imposter syndrome of saying like, how can I talk about this? Or, you know, when, when somebody made a comment and they didn't know how to respond and she just really helped people understand like, how do you engage in those kinds of conversations that really help, help, you know, elevate this work. So that really was the, 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 the purpose and many other communities that I know have sort of used that model and she's continued to do it sort of in a, in a different um, level of, master trainers, right? Or cohorts of trainers across the country. So that really was sort of the beauty for me. And I am grateful for that because she got to test some of her curriculum with some of those cohorts with us. And she's changed some of them. She's adapted some of them, but it really, in my opinion, aside from learning the curriculum, it's really about the building of the community with people that are passionate about this work. I totally agree. I've, I, I started Cultural Humility in 2019 um, I think a year before the pandemic and the critical self-reflection is what resonated the most. 
And I went in there thinking, oh, I'm, I don't need this training. I'm indigenous. I think I'm humble enough. I, I follow my, my, my cultural morals, which are seven teachings of the Anishinaabe people, you know, and humility is one of them. But when I went into the training, I was blown away by how much I was not applying to my life as far as really doing the work and communicating as far as the agreements go. What kind of people would you suggest should take cultural humility? Like if there's someone listening, who's never heard of it, is there a type of person that you think needs cultural humility or do you think it's right across the board? Um, I think everybody should just have an opportunity to listen it and understand it. You know, so as you know, um, um, it came out in sort of a healthcare model, right? So that she was working at children's hospital and the LA riots are sort of happening and really elevating the conversation of race again. So it came from that model. So when she talked about patient provider relationship that resonates well, but I actually think leaders who want to be better leaders, we are in a really difficult time, right? Many of the conversations that I've had with uh, colleagues is saying like, how can I be a better leader? How can I show up authentically, but then lead my team, my organization into um, the future? But even if people are feeling hopeless, there's just all these bad things that are happening. Even the folks that don't feel connected to the work, right? So they're like saying, well, what it is about? It's really for me, cultural humility is a betterment of self. So anyone that wants to be better, whether professionally or personally, in my opinion, uh, should just engage in really trying to understand the four basic principles. And even if they get stuck on self-reflection, I feel like you can actually benefit so much, right? You can benefit. And again, my, my own coming to it of as an individual coming to a country where I was considered, I'm still considered second-class citizen because, you know, I'm not white. I came from another country. Uh, my country of origin, you know, is different from most folks here. I identify as a transgender person. Uh, you know, uh, all the projections that people have about that, you know, I am constantly trying to, to kind of balance and navigate that. And if I get sucked into all of those beliefs that I'm not good enough you know, you know, I need to be this, this is the measure of success, then I will just self-destruct. And I don't want to be that person. Like I want to be, again, I believe in sort of a higher power that we have all purposes. And I want to just figure that out. You know, I don't know if I have figured that out, but I, I, I want to, again, uh, figure out a way to say that this person, you know, in the, in the scheme of the universe, embodied love, and here's the impact that they've had with others because he loved himself enough despite what everybody else is saying and tried his best to do something good. The peace that you get from cultural humility. I know it sounds like, uh, Jay, we're trying to figure out how to not make cultural humility sound like a cult because when you start practicing the framework of cultural humility, you get really enthusiastic about how peaceful life becomes because you're less frustrated. I mean, you, you're frustrated because you see systems and this dysfunction. But at the same time, you're less frustrated because you see the system and you also can get, start to get an idea about how to work with it and then how to compose yourself while working within the system. And so there's just so much peace and compassion for yourself and for other people on their learning journey. And we've been trying to sound not too enthusiastic about it just because we just <laughs> start to giggle that it sounds like a cult um, with these practices, but it just, it just makes life so much better and peaceful. And I don't know if you would have any advice because you're equally com- passionate about 
about the framework and, and the benefits that it has in life and in workplace. I, I do think we can be passionate about something that we believe in. Like I, every place that I've been and I talked about, and I've gone through many places in California teaching um, in my work, teaching about cultural humility, talking to uh, leaders about cultural humility. And some people don't get it and some people won't. And that's fine. And I said, I talk about this as a tool. Wouldn't you want to have an, an additional tool in your toolbox so that when you're trying to figure out what to do, that you have some something to use? That's what I always just say. Now, I, in my work, uh, this is the tool that I use quite a bit because I've seen it work. And here's the options of how uh, you can use it. And if it doesn't work for you, then don't use it. Melanie always says, cultural humility doesn't uh, work for everybody. Because I've struggled with some situations and I've said, I would ring her up and I said, I'm, this is where I'm at. I tried to use these principles and it didn't work. And I actually was surprised. She says, well, some, in some circumstances, it doesn't work. And so, but I've, I, I really believe it. I actually teach a master's in public um, administration class and I thought over the weekend, and we talked about cultural humility, and you could just see, I I, I eight students, I said, how many of you have heard this? And like, no one had, maybe two or three, and, but how many of you have heard about cultural competence? And that, that most of them talked about, yeah, I did. And so let's talk about, this is just another framework of how to approach the work. Many of the work that we're involved in involves relationships. Many of the work that we involve in, our lens gets in the way, that's why self-reflection is important. If you're bringing people together, difference in opinions, and then we work in institutions, right? And so, so I think it's just talking about it in a way that aligns with where they're at. And again, these 28 students, you know, and I ask them to reflect um, and they're like, well, how do you approach it? How, how do you use cultural humility in your work? You know, now we were going to look at the policies that the organization focused on equity. Now we're going to look at data differently and saying who's the most affected. Now, every time we do a, a decision, we have to bring in people with lived experience because they're the most affected. And here again, our, our folks who are part of systems that, you know, engage community. And they said, you know, I've been in many meetings when there's like one community member. And yet the, impact, the decision that they're making is going to impact the community. So they're saying, I can use cultural humility to think about who's going to be impacted the most. Like that's principle number three. And so it's really talking about ways on how you can align it in people's work. And that's how I've packaged it. And it, you know, it's just another tool, right? And sometimes the tool works because it fits and some, sometimes it doesn't. So we find another tool. And the other thing I've noticed that's really interesting that I think you would have a good perspective on as a psychologist is the comfortability that we get. So the whole training of trainers is to go through this series of activities that help you explore your own culture. And what I'm realizing is that we can't speak about other people's culture with other people unless we're comfortable about speaking about our own culture. So I, I'm, I have a TEK class at the University of Montana too, and I'm doing partial culture humility because it's traditional ecological knowledge and it's a bunch of non-native people trying to figure out how to add TEK into their like department or academic work. And so that's extraction of knowledge, right? And cultural humility, I think works really good for that. But what my students are noticing is that I'm making them talk a lot and that's not mm. what happens at university, right? <laughs> I yeah. think, and nobody has said anything to me yet, but I, but I, 
I think what I'm trying to press with them is that when we're looking into extracting knowledge from communities or working with communities, that just being comfortable talking about uncomfortable situations is a practice. And we get better at these uncomfortable conversations when we do it more often. And so just those breakouts in training and in class and those 10 or 15 minutes we get with peers in, in a cohort or in the class system, it's, it's really amazing what happens to our brain and our confidence when we get repetitive opportunities to talk about our culture and then to hear other people speak about their culture and all those emotions and feelings that go into it. I think that's the best part of the class of the training cohorts is getting to actually be in that dialogue. And that's, that's a tool in itself. And that's really hard to communicate to people sometimes is that it's a tool and it's a practice to just even be able to be in dialogue comfortably, even when it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And again, as I said earlier, and this is just from my own experience of growing up, you know, hearing like, you should be this, you should be that, you can't be this, you can't be that. This is not, I mean, so there's a lot of, for me, a lot of shame of who I am. And so when you get to be in the space and you tell them deep things about who you are, it really you know, does away with the shame of like, why well, this is who I am, right? You know, and why I see the world this way. And not to say that it's right or wrong. It's not that it's just a, a deeper level of understanding of the person that you're in front of, right? And so, and I think about, I heard this, you know, growing up too, about the, the separate of the professional versus personal. For some people like me, the professional and personal are the same. Like, I don't want to be a totally different person at work, you know, than who I am. And yet we say, you can't bring the personal and professional. I said, the authentic me says, I'm going to show up in my full self now, right? And, but, but again, when we come to work, like we, we're, we're expected to be some professional. And what does that even mean? And so when you have spaces where you talk to people of, this is my life, this is who I am, this is how I see the world. There's just a level of humanity connection there that we are totally against, right? That because there is this filter that we put in when we go to a professional setting, an academic setting, right? But when we, when we engage in really deep connection with people, you can see people really are trying to say like, oh, there's, there's the sameness there or we're connected somehow. And I, again, I feel, as you know, people feel disconnected so much around the world, even with our own communities. Just thinking differently, I feel, right? That really has just changed my perspective on what we, or how cultural humility can do it. That self-reflection is tough because also it opens up what are, quote unquote, flaws, right? That we're always trying to hide, right? You're not good enough. You're not this, that. So, but cultural humility is saying, Oh, you, we can open that. We're, we're, you're okay for who you are, uh, even with flaws and, and all. Yeah, that's that beautiful little line that says it's not if you'll make a mistake, it's when you'll make a mistake, and mm-hmm. we will all make mistakes. And like, even as a trainer, I let everybody know that I'm not, I'm not perfect in my facilitation and my training, and I will make mistakes, and there will be um, oopses that I might say because I'm not perfect in each one of these areas that we'll cover. I just, I love the compassion that it, and the comfortability that it makes with, that's our darker side, right? Like our getting comfortable with your dark self and then knowing how to work with that so that you achieve this, this nice balance as a human, right? It's also, I I feel like capitalism has put all of that colonialism, imperialism, put all of that and saying, right, that, that you can't, that's the, the bad stuff of you are like, well, that could just be a part of who I am, right? I mean, 
and, and I feel like that's the struggle always. You know, I often just sort of feel like we have to be compassionate with ourselves. Um, um, in, you know, as a therapist, I often say I can't be of service to other people if I don't feel well enough that I, you know, I don't have to be perfect to be able to help people. But if I am like in just a really bad space, I'm not as effective to the other person. So I need to figure out what can I do so that I can take care of myself enough that I have enough to sustain me. And then, then I can sort of be of service to, to, to other folks. And, and in capitalism, it's like, no, you just give, 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 or get, get, get. And then that's not how it works. Right. So and that's when I, when I feel like that self-reflection is super important. It's hard, you know. In grad school, I had an opportunity that every time we would have see a client, we would do a 10-minute journaling. That's the one thing that I've never been able to figure out is how can we use that self-reflection in our work? So now I'm considered sort of in my profession, like how that's a luxury. So I'm telling people, so I'm telling my students, before you go to bed, reflect, right? Do your journal writing and say, how was the day today? How was the meeting today? What was my role in that meeting? How could I have done it better? You know, what was my impact there? What was sort of maybe a, uh, a reflection I could do better? And even with staff here that we work with as part of their supervision, when they're supervising staff, we're telling them, you know, ask, leave five minutes early in that supervision and then say that five minutes that you have back, just spend quietly and say, huh, how was it? How was, how was this meeting? Right. And some people do it, some people don't, right? So, but people had said that, you know what, I actually you know, found out about something or discovered something. Um, so really trying to figure out ways to bring some of those practices concretely so that people can hold on and have some examples. That's, that's my mission right now is, because it's a nebulous, it can be nebulous, right? But when you give them examples of like, here's what five things that you can do that align with self-reflection. I'm like, oh, okay, I get that. Or the organization, you know, in, you know, accountability, line item, putting them in line item budgets, putting it that in your hiring practices. How will this look like? So that's what I keep telling Melanie. My focus is figuring out concrete examples on when you can do these things so that people can can use it. Because it's so again, like we'll talk about, you know, there's a power difference. Like, what does that mean? Right, so. Absolutely. Oh, I'm so excited. That, that's a good focus to have in culture humility. And, and I've been trying to get my student loans from my undergrad taken care of so that I can go to Fielding University to empirically test culture humility, because that's the only criticism about it right now is that it hasn't been empirically tested. And so I'm confident enough <laughs> in the trainings that I've done and the changes that I've seen that I can collect some feedback to have culture humility stand up <laughs> probably <laughs> against this insufficient notion that we can all be competent um you know in in not in our training we can be competent in our training but we can never be competent in somebody else's culture and and the knowing of that um, and it's all you know an individual experience experience with each person we meet so uh, we're curious if uh, what we're trying to do at Indigenous Vision is we're trying to uplift all the other culture humility trainers. And you might be on our, our email list already. I'm, I'm sure you are. And you've seen a couple emails go out. But we want to gather your trainings that you have open to the public or have registrations open for any upcoming talks that you're doing that would be open to the public. And we would like to advertise those for you. Yeah, I would, I would, I would love to send that to you as much as I can. The one thing that I'm, we're dreaming still is that summit that she had talked about 
prior to COVID. So if there is an interest to do that summit, I think I spoke to her like two weeks ago. Um, I said, you know, I, that dream is still alive for me. Uh, we yeah. would bring folks together and really do a, you know, a conference and really just hear across the country, across actually, you know, as you know, she went to New Zealand and talked about cultural humility. I mean, people are actually doing many of these, uh, this work already. I think come bring people to come together and talk about here's how it made a difference and here's how we're using it. Would I think also sort of broaden people's interest there and say like, how can I use it? I'm focused on, again, co- concretizing what are specific examples in each of those principles. But I have spoken to her about how do I use cultural humility in leadership, right? Because, you know, and so uh, that's the piece that I, I'm saying, like, because leaders are hungry for tools so that they can, you know, be better, right? Uh, so we, you know, I, I'm involved in a few other um, opportunities like equity grounded leadership. And I talk about cultural humility there sort of as a foundation. And you can just sort of people see, well, you know, how do I use that? If vulnerability is part of that. But there's really an approach of like, if you're going to be further on in sort of your leadership journey, managing organizations, town, city, or whatever, right? There is still a framework of how you want to do this work that I think gives you sort of a strong foundation as a leader. And so I, I that's sort of my, my perspective is how I've used cultural humility and leadership and leadership together in sort of really helping achieve a common purpose. You know, I don't know if I have a lot to say more in that, but it's just thinking about like in leadership classes, you know, really, really teasing out what does that mean for me um, in leadership. And definitely looking into those power imbalances in our existing leadership structures right now is I think where we will solve a lot of issues happening in the workplace Um, because your frontline employees, especially if you have those high turnaround rates, are are letting you know something. Let's end off on a lighthearted note. And cultural humility is is lighthearted in its essence in that there are oopses and ouches and all of this. And so what do you do uh, for joy? I'm all about protecting protecting your peace and protecting your joy because as a woman of color it's not very peaceful out here so I'm how how do you as a man protect your joy I surround myself with people that care about me deeply like really know me um, because of the the journey that I've been you know there are people who I just am meeting that don't know the other parts of me and so when I you know when I I'm really needing some nourishment. I, I reach out for folks that really know me, you know, bad stuff and all. There's also because I'm people project me that, you know, that uh, uh, a lot in me, like where I can be just myself of sometimes weak, emotional, you know, insecure, all of those things. So I, I really talk to them about that. I, and eating, you know, really, um, I love trying new food. So that helps nourish and remind me of like the importance of the connection with, you know, what we put in our body. And, you know, I'm still also early on, I would say middle in my journey of spirituality, you know, growing up of hearing like religion can k- kind of really put a damper on who you are and really shifting that a little bit and saying like, what is it about higher power beliefs that really nurture and and give me hope? Right? That's that's a piece. Um, so those are the things that I, I am trying to do to take care of me, surrounding my, myself with people who really know me, um, food, and then, you know, really understanding sort of my connection with sort of spirituality in, in a world that's, you know, that has pushed us to be materialistic, frankly, and capitalistic, frankly, and like saying what's, what's enough. 
and when you're enough and, and, and not always wanting to kind of just go, go, go. Do you have any advice for someone who, like me, struggles with imposter syndrome when actually facilitating the curriculum? Do you have any advice for someone who's a new trainer who could be, you know, struggling with their capitalistic colonialism issues? That happens to me a lot too, especially when, when people are, when, when participants are, uh, you can, I mean, I read the, I, I, one of the, my things that I, that people have said to me, to me is I read the room well. And so I'm very keen on how people are reacting or, you know, so when I'm sort of seeing sort of this nonverbal things of like, what, what does he even know? He, he, he's not done all the work. Like, you know, I, I just sort of remind myself about really the cultural humility and really saying that this is a journey that we're in, that things are changing, right? So um, that we, that we, what, what, and we bring a certain perspective to, to create possibilities, right? So, and I, so that's one. And the other one that I said, which is, I've spoken about this, you know, we are in a culture where I don't like you, you don't agree with me. It's a cancel culture. And I believe people, you know, that people are actually, that everybody has the, the right and should be part of the conversation. So if people are, if we have those issues about imposter syndrome, or I don't have the answer, it's a reminder that the answer could not be with me, but with all of us coming together collectively. So, right. So that's what I, the division for me is, yeah, yeah. When people, when I feel like that, I'm saying, you know, I don't know if I have the answer to that, you know, I'm feeling like I'm not equipped for that. Maybe somebody has different opinions and perspective about this particular issue. And that reminds me that we need each other. No one is dispensable because we need each other. And I feel like that's about leadership. We have this notion, and I'm going to end on this, is we have this notion that it's always this one person that's one leader. But you, in your culture, in, in my culture, it's collective leadership, right? That we make decisions because it affects everybody. So this notion of there's a Marty that will save the day is very capitalistic. And that really has put us in a really, really bad place. But if we remember that leadership is really about bringing people together and collectively thinking about some of these issues, that the knowledge is within people around us, then it says, well, I don't need to know all the answers because there are people around me that will reflect that or come up with it. And so that for me is the beauty of always saying, I don't, I don't need to have all the answers. I don't need to, to know everything because we together as a community can have that solution can have that conversation. So the pressure goes down. The pressure really goes down for me. Totally. Thank you for that. What a beautiful way to end off this podcast. And JFK, I really hope to meet you one day at the, the conference of the training of trainers. That would be so amazing. You've been listening to the Cultural Humility Podcast presented by Indigenous Vision. If you would like to sign up for one of our trainings or find out when our next training is, visit our website, indigenousvision.org slash cultural humility. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Indigenous Vision, an educational nonprofit, and on Instagram at Indigenous Vision Media. Visit the show description for this episode to find all the links for more on cultural humility.